Welcome to Bed Crime Stories Podcast. I'm your host, T. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, bed crimers. As always, I wish you the best. To anyone new here, a warm welcome. Thank you for checking out my channel. Let me just ask that after listening to or watching this video, if you learned something or enjoyed it, please do me a favor and smash that like button. Now let's dig in. Hi guys, how are you doing? I hope great. If you found yourself across from a serialist on the subway, do you think you could tell? And by serialist, I mean someone who does in more than one person on more than one occasion. I'm not using the two-letter version of this term because YouTube does not like that wording. According to experts, there are some telltale signs and traits that can expose someone as a serialist. We all like to think that the hair on our arms would stand straight up in the presence of a Ted Bundy, a Jeffrey Dahmer, a Dennis Rader, that if we were to look into their eyes, a chill would tingle its way up our spines. But would it? Cliff Lansley, a behavioral scientist, spoke to the Hippocratic Post, and he shared the strange body language and microscopic signs and gestures that can reveal you're dealing with a serialist. Lansley said serialists can slip up and that when they do, there are little signs in their faces, bodies, and voices that give them away. According to a study conducted in 1971 by social psychologist Professor Albert May Robian at the University of Los Angeles, body language makes up for 55% of the meaning in how a person communicates his or her feelings, and around 38% comes from the tone and pitch that a person uses while just 7% comes from the actual words that person uses. Lansley said that when trying to determine whether someone is lying about a crime, it is not whether they maintain eye contact, sweat, or evade questions. Rather, it is all about how their behavior changes. This is why when an investigator interrogates a potential perpetrator at the beginning of the interview, the investigator holds a conversation designed to make the perpetrator feel comfortable and to put him or her at ease. The interviewer will bring up topics that have nothing to do with the crime to get the person talking without stirring up emotion. It's during this period that the investigator will make note of how often the person blinks, the normal color of their facial skin, their typical speech rate, what they do with their hands, and whether or not they maintain eye contact. This is how the investigator establishes the person's normal baseline patterns and behaviors. Once the baseline has been established, the investigator, as he or she is questioning the potential perpetrator, will be able to assess the person's discomfort, stress, and if he or she is lying. The guys on the behavioral panel often talk about a person's baseline and how it's necessary to have a read on that 
before you can be certain a person is showing signs of deception. Many believe that if someone looks away from you, that means automatically that they're lying. This apparently is not true. Studies show that maintaining eye contact while telling an account is actually a stronger indicator of deception than looking away since this suggests someone is checking to see if they are being believed. Now, I want to share some myths about serialists. The information I'm about to share comes from the Federal Bureau of Investigation. The FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit wrote a report entitled Serial Murder, Multidisciplinary Perspectives for Investigators and in it, they discuss these myths. I'm going to jump right in with myth number one, which is serialists are all dysfunctional loners. According to the FBI, the majority of serialists are not reclusive social misfits who live alone. They are also not monsters, and they may not appear strange. I mean, I would argue that they are monsters. That's kind of silly. Unfortunately, many serialists hide in plain sight within their communities, and they often have families, homes, and jobs. To many, they appear to be normal members of the community because so many serialists can blend in effortlessly. They're often overlooked by law enforcement and the public. Case in point, Robert Yates. Yates did in 17 Ladies of the Night in the Spokane, Washington area during the 1990s. While all that was going down, he was married with five children, lived in a middle-class neighborhood, and was a decorated U.S. Army National Guard helicopter pilot. Yates routinely patronized ladies of the night, and several of his victims knew each other. And guess where he buried one of his victims? Right below his bedroom window in his backyard. I'm sure his wife was thrilled when she found out about that. Like, really, dude? You couldn't maybe pick a spot farther away from the house? Thankfully, Yates was eventually arrested and pled guilty to 13 of the crimes. I'm sorry to report that Yates is now 70 years old and still alive, but he is incarcerated. Myth number two, serialists are all white males. Contrary to popular belief, serialists span all racial groups. There are white, African-American, Hispanic, and even Asian serialists. In fact, the racial diversification of serialists generally mirrors that of the overall U.S. population. Some examples include Charles Nguyen. His last name is N-G. How do you pronounce that without a vowel? Sorry, I don't know. And I honestly mean no disrespect. A native of Hong Kong, China, he did in numerous victims in Northern California in concert with Robert Lake. And then there's Derek Todd Lee, an African-American who did in at least six women in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. By the way, I love Louisiana and I always say New Orleans is my soul city. In French, you would say La Nouvelle Orléans. 
And then we have Coral Eugene Watts, an African-American, did in five victims in Michigan, fled the state to avoid detection, and did in another 12 victims in Texas before being apprehended. And then we have Rafael Resendez Ramirez, a native of Mexico, who did in nine people in Kentucky, Texas, and Illinois before turning himself in. You gotta love a serialist who turns himself in. Myth number three. Serialists are only motivated by getting jiggy. I'm saying getting jiggy because I can't say the three-letter word beginning with an S and ending with an X on YouTube. Just like serialists come in all colors, shapes, and sizes, so too do their motivations for committing the crimes. Some are driven by anger, others by the thrill of it, and some, like BTK, crave attention. In the Washington, D.C. area, serial sniper John Allen Mohammed, a former U.S. Army staff sergeant, and Lee Boyd Malvo harmed people primarily out of anger and for the thrill. They were able to terrorize the greater Washington, D.C. metro area for three straight weeks, harming 13 people in total, 10 of whom died. They communicated with the police by leaving notes, and they attempted to extort money to stop their crime spree. Scary. Then there's a guy named Paul Reed. He did in at least seven people during fast food restaurant robberies in Tennessee. Reed's modus operandi was to rob the restaurants for financial gain. The reason he did in the people was primarily to eliminate witnesses who could identify him. Myth four, all serialists travel and operate interstate. Per the FBI, most serialists have very defined geographic areas of operation. They conduct their crimes within comfort zones that are often defined by an anchor point. Examples include their place of residence, their workplace, or a family member's residence. Serialists will, at times, spiral their activities outside of their comfort zone, and this usually occurs when their confidence has grown through experience or their ability to avoid detection. So they get braver as long as they don't get caught. But still, very few serialists travel interstate to commit their crimes. The few serialists who do travel interstate fall into a few categories. One, itinerant individuals who move from place to place. Two, homeless individuals who are transients. One and two sort of seem to be the same, in my opinion. Three, individuals whose employment lends itself to interstate or transnational travel, such as truck drivers or those in military service. The difference between these types of offenders and other serialists is the nature of their traveling lifestyle, which provides them with many zones of comfort in which to operate. That definitely makes sense. Myth 5. Serialists cannot stop committing their crimes. 
It has been widely believed that once serialists start harming people, they can't stop themselves. There are, however, some serialists who stop harming people altogether before being caught. In these instances, there are events or circumstances in the offenders' lives that inhibit them from going after more victims. Such events tend to include increased participation in family activities, substitutions for getting jiggy, and other diversions. Dennis Rader, a.k.a. BTK, did in 10 victims from 1974 until 1991. He did not harm any other victims prior to being captured in 2005. During interviews conducted by law enforcement, Raider admitted to engaging in getting jiggy type activities as a substitute for his crimes. So he found a diversion that kept him from hitting the streets and tracking down more victims. Myth number six, all serialists are insane or evil geniuses. As a group, serialists suffer from a variety of personality disorders, including psychopathy, antisocial personality, and others. Most, however, are not adjudicated as insane under the law. Just like other populations, however, serialists range in intelligence, from borderline to above-average levels. So movies like Silence of the Lambs have a tendency to make people think that all serialists are these brilliant masterminds, when in reality, they are pretty much average Jane and Joes, maybe some are above average. Myth number seven, serialists want to get caught. Offenders committing a crime for the first time are inexperienced. They gain experience and confidence with each new offense, eventually succeeding with few mistakes or problems. While most serialists plan their offenses more thoroughly than other criminals, the learning curve is still very steep. They must select, target, approach, control, and dispose of their victims. The logistics involved in committing such a crime can become very complex, especially when there are multiple sites involved. As serialists continue to offend without being captured, they can become empowered, feeling that they will never be identified. As they offend more and more without getting caught, the perpetrators may begin to take shortcuts when committing their crimes. This often causes them to take more chances, eventually leading them to being identified by law enforcement. It is not that serialists want to get caught, rather they feel that they can't get caught. Dennis Rader is the perfect example. He harmed his first four victims from the Otero family in 1974, and he harmed his last victim in 1991. In 2004, the 30th anniversary of that first horrific crime in which the Oteros lost their lives, news stories came out in the local and national news. Raider, who had yet to be caught, saw the articles and he began to miss his notoriety as BTK. He was also hungry to offend again. This is when he abruptly resurfaced 
after going quiet in 1991. So in 2004, he sees all these articles and he begins communicating with the police and the media once again. He'd always enjoyed his sick celebrity and messing with people's heads. When a local news report speculated that BTK was either deceased or in prison, Raider could not resist the temptation to refute the rumors. Over the next 11 months, he sent 10 taunting messages to the authorities, many of them going to Detective Ken Landwehr, with whom Raider thought he enjoyed a special rapport. Raider asked Landwehr whether he could communicate with him via a floppy disk without it being traced to a particular computer. Landwehr naturally lied and said, yes, it's safe. A few weeks later, a floppy disk from BTK addressed to Ken Landwehr arrived at a local television station. The disk was quickly traced to Raider through a computer at the local Lutheran church where he was president of the congregation. Raider was finally busted after all those years, and it was due to his ego. And because Landwehr had lied to him, Raider perceived it as a betrayal of sorts. In his police interrogation, he even expressed shock that the police lieutenant would intentionally deceive him. Unbelievable. In his mind, he and Landwehr were buddies, apparently. Well, I hope you found that interesting. I did. And I'll see you next time on Bed Crime Stories. Please smash that like button. Please consider a membership. And I'll see you next time.